and welcome. My name is Jolene, and unfortunately, Emma isn't here today. She is in the throes of prepping for her next film, Baby Fever, with Monstrous Femme. Uh, but nonetheless, I am a costume designer. She is still a costume designer um, whose love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. So this week on the pod, um, or this month, I should say, I am joined by a very special guest, my partner in crime, George, who is a huge Nicolas Cage fan, and this is why we decided to get together, just the two of us in our apartment, and talk about the Nicolas Cage renaissance. Welcome, George. (laughs) Hello, it's good to be here, even though I listen to it whenever it comes out. You do, you do. And you also listen to us record through the door because I usually record in our bedroom. I am a fan. <laughs> I also feel like I'm a part of it in other ways, like keeping our, our dog quiet and content while she begs for attention from outside the door. This is true, yeah. So we're hoping that Sweepy behaves this uh, this recording. So, okay. George is not a costume designer. He is a photographer, industry adjacent, but um, that means that he understands light. So as far as costume design goes, that's pretty much a DP and a lighting designer on set are pretty much your best friends as a costume designer um, because they can either make or break your costumes. So as a non-costume designer, George, what do you love about Nick Cage? I mean, (laughs) there's a lot. And this is an episode where we can only talk about so much, which is the best part about him is just keeps giving to us. <laughs> so while we're going to focus only on a handful of the movies, more specifically his most recent ones, if our fans or your fans want to delve in deeper, they can find so much to, to look into or to think and learn about him and the movies he's worked in and just what he's worn or what he even wears just in real life. Just his own wardrobe is something to kind of behold in. Yeah, he has some incredible fashion choices on the red carpet and um, in just, I think, tabloid photos I've seen of him of just like metallic jackets and crazy studded denim vests. And yeah, he's a, he's an interesting fella. So um, Nicolas Cage, for those of you that don't know, is a Coppola. He is part of the Coppola clan. He got his start in the 80s. First film was Fast Times at Ridgemont High. First real role was Valley Girl, which is an incredible movie if you've never seen it. Um, Not horror, but like camp 80s loveliness, where he plays the bad boy on the other side of the valley, falling in love with a valley girl. It's like Romeo and Juliet. It's lovely. And he did it so well then, and he still does it now. He does. He does. Um, But his first real horror movie was in 1988, and that was Vampire's Kiss which was designed by Irene Albright and Terry Mandred. They, so this movie, if you've never seen it, it's, I think it's still on Shudder. It's kind of crazy. It's very subdued as far as costume design goes. He's in a suit most of the time. He's a publisher who is, is he or is he not going mad? Is he or is he not turning into a vampire? I think it's about a man going mad with stress and he starts attacking people and he starts visualizing this, this vampiric woman and, starts following him around, but that's where we get a lot of these incredible cage face gifs and memes that are super famous. Um, A lot of them are from that movie. So if you have not seen it, I would highly recommend checking it out. We watched it a while back. Yeah. You like that one, right? That one was a fun one. I think same thing going back to what we were talking about, what we love about him is even in those first few roles, you start seeing the, the glimpses or you start seeing where he kind of maybe in his own head just it clicks of like this is kind of getting a reaction so it's going to become almost like a personality trait and then that's what kind of rolls through his career in every movie even if it's not a horror movie it's it's Nicolas Cage and it's something that's extremely recognizable about him. Yeah, and, and this is by no means us at all making fun of him or his performances. His performances are outlandish. Don't get us wrong. But he is an incredible actor, and we actually ha- highly respect him and his work. And we're doing this because we genuinely love his films, especially this new wave of films, which we're going to get to. So I, I guess the second horror film we could talk about briefly is The Wicker Man in 2006. This is where we get the fabulous bees line 
from that's on the Cards Against Humanity card, and it's you know quoted everywhere. Um, I think we saw somebody at I don't know if you were with me or not, but I think I think it was the Joe Bob's Jamboree this summer. Um, there was a man in a button-down Hawaiian-style shirt. Oh yeah, I and was it, there. yeah, yeah. Okay, then you were there. Um, and it was the pattern of Nicolas Cage with the with the thing on his head from the Wicker Man, which was designed by Lynette Meyer. And she also designed Final Girls, which is another movie Emma and I talk about a lot on the podcast. Um, so she did the Wicker Man, but to usher in this new Nick Cage renaissance, you can't really combine his name with anything. So a cage um, mm-hmm. is 2018 film Mandy, which was costume designed by Alice Alistartes. Is I think how you would pronounce her last name. So my apologies that I'm pronouncing it wrong. But um, we showed this on the last drive-in. It is quickly become a cult classic. And I don't know. Would you say this is one of your favorite Cage films, or do you have another favorite? I as think far so. as like his newer horror ones go. Yeah, in terms of the recent ones, that definitely towers above him by not only his acting and performance in that, but just the sheer scale and the, I don't even know how to describe the (laughs) the level of insanity in terms of what's going on on screen, but just the visuals themselves, uh, the use of colors Mm -hmm. and the the costumes, everything kind of adds into it from the subdued nature at the start to when it just kind of goes and escalates at that point. And every time that you think it's settled, it starts to to ramp up again. And yeah. he's at the center of it all. Yeah, absolutely. So Mandy is the story of Red, who's played by Nicolas Cage, where him and his girlfriend Mandy are living this nice life together. And she is abducted by a cult and she is then killed. Sorry, spoilers, but that's what the film is about. Um, and he go- basically just goes on a killing rampage that is like part John Wick, part LSD trip. The colors of this film, it's super high saturated. It's a lot of neons and pinks and reds and really interesting camera work. I really like it for the camera work. I love it for, I mean, the costume design is very simple. It's a lot of black and white. He's in, I mean, they're both in, what's really great about the costume design is that they're both in this united front as a couple where they're both shown in those baseball tees, those raglan baseball tees in the beginning. And he's, you know, then picks up Mandy's shirt and puts it on as his own shirt. So he starts out with the black with the orange sleeves with the tiger on it. She's got the black sleeves with the white shirt with the number 44 on it. And then he, it, we find out that she is just wearing his shirt. So he winds up wearing that shirt that she has been killed in. Um, and, puts it on to go on this rampage and takes revenge on this cult. Um, and for a lot of, and for a good chunk of it, he is pantsless in tidy whiteies. So kudos to Nicolas Cage. It's a look. It is a great, it's a great look. Um, this is where we get that incredible Cheddar Goblin commercial that is just very out of place. Like the whole movie is just very kind of all over the place and out of place, but works and the textures are really soft and the colors are really soft, but they but they add these like harsh edges in there with the with the weaponry and the excessive use of blood um, and the random tigers and I don't know what are your what are your thoughts if you're because you're not a costume designer so when you look at this film what stands out to you first Yeah, I was gonna say so in terms of my understanding of costumes and design, it's what I've learned with you or being with you, which is it's opened up that aspect of it so now I kind of think of it a little more or keep it in the forefront of my mind and uh, you're right it's the colors are saturated it's there are there's a, there's a softness to it but when you get to the the combat or you get to the the bikers all that is heavy blacks a lot of jagged edges sharp teeth spikes and even the the scenes themselves there's a lot of clutter going on and he always kind of stands out in a weird way of first he's walking around with the just a shirt and underwear he gets caught and then he almost kind of as he goes through the revenge or the the search for that he becomes a little more part of that jaggedness and the roughness because he gets the armor he gets the blood he does the drugs and he's (laughs) more and more insane 
and unhinged as he progresses. Of course, the the goal, it's still the same. He still, he wants revenge. The woman of his dreams has been stolen from him and he's not going to rest until he brings justice upon those who, who did him wrong and worse, did her the ultimate wrong. Like from a lighting perspective, when you look at this stuff, well, do, when do you watch movies with like the visual of of lighting being a photographer or do you just watch them just and get lost in the story? It depends on the film. Um, you know, even the the biggest blockbuster, the schlockiest movie, there's intention. Uh, how you light it, how you costume it, you have something in mind and your team is working to to put that across. So what they're wearing, how they light it, it, it all adds to the mood or the goal that they're trying to convey, not just by how he acts and how he speaks. Because again, we get a lot of that and it's Nicolas Cage, so we get a very unique acting style. But you don't get the whole story just by that. And that's the, the importance of how they light, how they costume it. I'm trying to think of like some standout things. Because this, I mean, the first time I watched this movie, I I was I was mesmerized and blown away by it because... It was so, I think the only word to use is insane. And Andrea uh, Riseborough, who plays Mandy, um, she's also in Possessor, which is a Cronenberg film. Or, yeah, or the son of Cronenberg's film. Yeah, which, another fantastic one for yeah, which we really a different liked. conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And Linus Roche plays Jeremiah Sand, who is the cult leader. It is. It's insane. It. There's no other adjective to to describe it um and from a costuming perspective it's really simple i mean you have a lot of t-shirts you have you know very simple pieces and um the cult is still very simple but it's ethereal and you have a lot of um shawls and smocks to kind of differentiate them from mandy and red and the rest of this normal i'm assuming it's a lakeside village that they live in they they live in like an upstate new york type community where it's it's secluded and there's not a lot of people yeah. around but it's more of like it, it strikes me as more of like a vacation spot like someplace that people would travel to they just happen to be the ones that live there all year round um where they have this beautiful I want that room with the with the windows. The A-frame. Yeah, the A-frame with the windows. Yeah, that's a goal. Yeah, we love A-frames. Yeah, it's it's really simple and it's effective and it works to the point where like you see men at conventions and and women too probably. I haven't seen any women, but I'm sure that there are women that are also dressing up like this as well as Mandy and and one of our bands that played the Jamboree, I am blanking on their name, but the lead singer was dressed as Red. With the tiger t-shirt and the no pants and the, but, but it was like red after he was beat up a little bit. So he, I think I sent you a picture of this and he had like the, um, the bandage around his forehead. Yeah. Cause I, I hadn't gone hadn't to gone that day yet. and then I came yeah. the day after. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's very iconic. Um, it's very replicable. You can replicate it very easily um, to the point where for reference for you listeners as well, I threw George a Nick Cage themed surprise party for his <laughs> birthday last year. And we came as Red and Mandy and we got the shirts. I mean, we had pants on. Um, we had jeans on because it was May. But um, yeah, we got, I mean, you can find those shirts on Etsy. You can find them online. And um, Legion M is the company that does a lot of the merch for Mandy. Yeah, they, they have the official ones. Yeah. Well, so I was going to say, going back to that, in terms of the location, the Red, Mandy, they're all every day. It's kind of like a rustic middle of nowhere. It looked like a lumber town. Mm-hmm. He was working, I think it was a lumber yard at the start of the, the movie. So their costumes, they reflect that. Yeah. Their environment, so they're in the woods. They're, there's nothing too fancy about them, but it's, it's comfortable. It's uh, everyday wear. Yeah. And then you get the the really stark contrast with those bikers that come in with the the almost guar type masks with the horns and you know football sized armor where the shoulders are popping out and they're just of another planet and it's almost as if is red really seeing these creatures or 
are they just a figment of his imagination because he's so tripped out and he's so full of rage and just so full of like all of these emotions trying to find Mandy or take revenge for Mandy or avenge Mandy. So there's a there's a lot left up to the imagination. Paolo, let me pronounce his name correctly. Panos Cosmastos was the writer director of the story and you said that you saw another project that Panos did correct not you know oh you know of another project yeah because if i'm correct he's done one other movie i can double check also but i want to say it's beyond the black rainbow okay and i believe similarly speaking in terms of same bad yeah in terms of the uh, in regards to color specifically Mm. it's a lot of bright hues and contrasting tones and from what i've been told it's if you enjoyed Mandy, you're gonna enjoy that project, and it's it's just a it's a visual feast. Okay, to to say the least, is my understanding. Nice. I mean, and and he's this style has kind of ushered in this new era of horror filmmaking with these bright hues. I mean, we're seeing a lot of movies now that utilize these pinks, these these blues, these oranges, these reds, and these high color, high contrast, saturated tones on these films. Um, I really quite enjoy it. I mean, the the other films on these lists, except Prisoners of Ghostland, that but the other ones that we're going to talk about have these same color palettes with them. But I mean, I saw it in being utilized in parts of like Titan, and I'm trying to think of other films that we've seen recently where we've seen this like same. It comes style. up a lot, yeah. It's nice, and it's quite refreshing from the like mid aughts. Everything was blue and orange because those are opposite colors on the color wheel. So it's really nice to see more color added in. Um, so speaking of more color, the next one we're going to talk about is 2019's Color Out of Space, which was costume designed by Patricia Doria. And that is an H.P. Lovecraft story. It is the, called The Color Out of Space, but the screenplay was by Richard Stanley, directed by Richard Stanley. Uh, so we have another writer-director combo, again, starring Nick Cage. And um, the mom is played by a woman close to my name, Jolie Richardson. <laughs> so um, I I enjoyed this one. I really like the Lovecraft adaptations. I haven't seen too many of them. We've started getting into them now. We haven't read too much of his stuff. We visited his grave when we went to Providence. We did. We paid our respects. We did. So if you're in Providence, Rhode Island, and you want to pay your respects to H.P. Lovecraft, his grave is there. A lot of weird artifacts and accoutrements that are left in his grave which is really fun to see yeah but i i really enjoyed this one i thought it was a really good story a lot of people have said now a lot of like very staunch hp lovecraft fans say that it's really hard to adapt his stories into film version um i don't have that much of an attachment to his written work i've, I've read like one or two of his stuff but not all of his stuff to to know i mean i guess i think anything if you if you're a a deep fan of a novel version of a, of a story which where it's written down it's i think when you have that con- preconceived notion already of the story in your brain it's gonna already be hard to translate that into film version because you know you have this idea of what what you think it should look like in your head so but i think they did a really good job yeah and again it's an adaptation yeah i same thing i enjoyed it in terms of the grand pantheon of nick cage films not the strongest one in terms of i guess when i saw it it was very much it felt kind of like a grindhouse version of the thing Mm. almost in a way so you got a lot of pieces from other films and then you got the lovecraft nick cage twist to it which is kind of what elevated it from a typical movie to to in my opinion an excellent one because they can go either way it'll be a you you put in Nicolas Cage and suddenly you make an okay movie into something a little more interesting because of just the way that he engages with you as a, a viewer when you're watching him yeah and I mean what a lot of people I think look for especially in these newer films is like him quote-unquote caging out even though he's a really good serious actor, people want to see him kind of freak out in these roles because he does anger comedically well because he's so over the top. And there was only one moment of, of a cage out in this movie. So I think a, a lot of people, for a lot of people, it wasn't as strong of a cage, quote unquote, film Yeah, as, I, as the other ones. I, I kind of enjoyed that. Yeah, because you, I did too. 
Yeah, you get him very subdued and just the first half, it's like, oh, he's such a loving father and he cares so much about his family. But as the the color starts to affect him, he begins to deteriorate and he becomes, he's more cage-like as it progresses. <laughs> and we see him in wardrobe choices that are very different from how he has been costumed in other films. So when you have somebody of this name, they will usually work with, um, they have a lot of input in in their costume, um, and there's a lot of conversation between the costume designer and the actor as to what they think the character is and the development of the character. And it was really refreshing for me to see them making different choices for him because a lot of the times you see a lot of different actors playing different roles, but wearing the same version of that other role that you previously saw them in like three times four times over so this one this was a lot of like layers you had a lot of button downs on him he was a dad a lot of sweater vests then you have that nice plaids and the red which is the opposite of the color purple on the color wheel if we're going to talk about color wheel is on him in the beginning and what saturates his lawn is all the purple but it, it i don't know like looking at these images of the film First of all, they're very symmetrical. They're very pleasing. And it's it's a lot of like fairy tale quality to them. There's quite a bit of denim in this film, which is really nice because they, they do live on a farm or they live on a larger piece of land. He is comfy. He you is can, comfy. Yeah. You get that for sure. And that's it's consistent. Yeah. Uh, same thing in terms of Mandy. It's he's a working man. So the outfits that he wears throughout the movie, it, it matches that. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, he's got, he, they got him in these great reds and soft colors so that when this, this gelatinous um, alien form in these bright pinks, these bright purples start taking over him and start infiltrating the family, even the daughter too, she's in soft laces, she's in like thinner black garments, um, you, it really impacts the performance more because you have these really soft fabrics on under this like, gross nasty goo so you you really see that contrast and that's really nice yeah yeah i like that a lot it, it punches with the <laughs> colors more as well absolutely this one has some really gnarly special effects visual effects some nods to you know like who it will affect more i mean we have the daughter with the purple stripe in her hair so you're wondering if there's a connection to this life form through her because she's one of the least affected. I mean, the mother and the son get really affected. They become one being in this movie. I was going to say, you, you know, we're here talking about Nicolas Cage, but yeah. you can't not give a nod to, to them. You, know, you can't talk about this film and not talk about just the grossness and their wailings of pain and how it lingers for way too long to make everyone uncomfortable in the theater to the point where I was there watching it. And we were definitely, there was people laughing and yeah. we're like, oh, this is excessive. But again, it, like I mentioned it earlier, it was kind of grindhousey in a, in a weird esoteric way. So it kind of pulled on that aspect of it. Yeah. And Madeline Arthur, who plays the daughter Lavinia, I really liked her in this role because I have seen her, if you're a rom-com lover, um, I have seen her in To All the Boys I Love series, which is like a rom-com series on Netflix. Uh, so it was really nice watching her do a different role, which I really liked in this movie. Um, I thought the acting choices were really well done. And you, so you saw this when it first came out, right? You went to the Alamo Drafthouse to see this movie? Yeah, that was one of the last films I saw before quarantine kicked in. Oh, okay. So how did it, because I saw it for the first time on Shudder. So how did seeing it in a larger theater impact your viewing of it? Did you ever see it again at home? Yeah, oh, I did, did okay. give it a repeat viewing. That one is, it's a film that lends itself to getting it in a larger screen, larger format. The colors just, they hit you in a different way. Hmm. His acting is just that much more grandiose because of the, you know, the surround sound. When he's yelling at his kids and he's cursing and flipping out and and losing it or again the the mother and son are fused together and just unrelentingly moaning and groaning in pain it, it gets to point across and again some people 
we we ended up laughing a little bit because of how excessive it was or how much fun we were having i think in in the context of knowing that that was gonna be one of the last films we would be seeing in theater Mm. it it was funner because of it did you know that that was one of the last films or you you didn't know no i think at that point it was or covid and and everything was coming up you know little by little as entering the the consciousness of society and it was coming up in the news more but i i did see maybe like two other films after that but i remember the first kind of whispers of it Mm. were were already beginning okay i so i saw this for the first time on shutter during quarantine um but not not in a theater just in my basement and i i mean i thought it worked really well i so i always we think about because we have a lot of physical media um and a lot of people in the horror community have a lot of physical media which makes this genre so different from other genres um we're still collecting vhs tapes a lot of us have thousands and thousands of dvds and shelves um i mean George and I are big vinyl people and we still have cassettes and CDs and, you know, and we think a lot about analog versus LED and these more bright color films that are now coming out. I am curious to know what they would look like on a tube analog television because, I mean, our director from the last drive in Austin, Jennings, he actually has um, an analog television that he hooks his laptop up to a lot. And it it does give it a different look. So I'm curious to know, like, what a film like this would look like on an analog television. Like, you would obviously lose detail, but what... I'm curious. Yeah, we'll have to try that. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, you can't replicate film. No. It just... It's never going to... It's not going to be as clean as what you'd get on digital. But in that same sense, you're getting quality that... Again, can't be replicated. You're getting right. a fuzziness. You're getting weird hints of things that an Instagram filter, you can try as you might. But again, it's it's not the same thing. Yeah. And it, well, I wonder if these films are better served on LED because of the high color that is coming into the, the digital editing process and, and the choices that they're making. And I mean, for costume design, you're certainly getting so much more detail on these high definition televisions that you weren't getting before but then i mean like emma and i have spoken to it's a help and a hindrance where you could do so much computer graphic editing on top of your film that you know something like i always bring up the example of beauty the the new disney beauty and the beast that came out a few years ago where there was hand embroidery and lacing and all of these detail and costuming that got lost because so much was cgi'd on top of what was filmed. So I think like the whole practical versus visual effects arguments that people have when it comes to horror movies, I think it's it's like Guillermo del Toro says, you need both, I think, to make a perfect marriage, to make a nice middle ground. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, this this one was a nice one. I really liked this one. And I, I need to watch it a few more times, I think, because I've only seen it just maybe once or twice. But So it's definitely like a lower one that I've watched on my list. But I, yeah, I enjoy it. I have a lot of fun with it. And the costumes are great. Um, Just, you know, middle America family. Nice, comfortable 2019 clothing. <laughs> and then the nightmare ensues. Yeah, and then the nightmare ensues. So um, in 2020, obviously, lockdowns happen. A lot of movies don't get released. Or some movies get released that were already filmed. Um, and we didn't get a new... Nick Cage movie until last year. Um, this one was my favorite of this year. I I know a lot of people who did not like this movie, and then a lot of people loved this movie. Um, and we're talking about 2021, so this came out just in February, um, for Willy's Willy's Wonderland, which came out the weekend of Valentine's Day, and, and we watched it for Valentine's Day. We downloaded it and spent the 20 bucks, and we watched it, and... I loved it. I, th- I mean, I, I would say that you loved it, too. I think so. Again, <laughs> what's more romantic than getting together to share in our love right. of each other and the love of Nicolas Cage? And the lo- and Nicolas Cage kicking the ever-living shit out of animatronics. I So I have a, a little bit of a fascination with, like, Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza Palace history and venues. Um, I loved going to Chuck E. Cheese as a kid. I loved going to, we had this place on Long Island called The Fun Zone that had the Showbiz Pizza Palace 
Rock of Fire explosion show because after Chuck E. Cheese kind of like dissolved, like took over the business and dissolved the Showbiz Pizza Palace side of the business because they made more money, they were selling these show packages of like these crazy animatronic animals to different places. So you didn't have to have a Showbiz Pizza Palace to have the Rock of Fire explosion show. So when I saw, like, I don't normally watch trailers, but this trailer I definitely watched. And as soon as I saw this trailer, I knew I wanted to see it because it was just so insane and so strange. But it, it's something that I think we all think about as, as kids, especially 90s kids. Was it like, what do these animatronics do when the place closes? Do they come to life? Are they haunted? Are they possessed? Like, do they have a mind of their own? They're terrifying, these things. I I, I love this one. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, going outside of the medium of movies, I, I play a lot of games. And most people that play games most likely have heard of Five Nights at Freddy's. So I think even at one point that this film was supposed to be tied in somehow and it went in a different direction. But even if it wasn't, that conversation or the topic of animatronics kind of rebounded and it was in our minds again, which is it's cool because it's such a weird relic of Americana or our weird off the highway or off on the road, just imagery and iconography of, you know, the giant weird robotic rat and their weird robotic (laughs) animal cohorts playing the banjo or weird instruments yeah um and i mean animatronics are very american as far as their history goes too because the type of technology that we think about when we think of audio animatronic or the or the actual audio animatronic um just that phrase alone was pioneered and developed by Walt Disney and was used in his conversations with Mr. Lincoln, which was at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. Um, He set up It's a Small World, which was another animatronics dark boat ride. Um, If you're in the theme park world, that dark rides are just, you know, show scene rides that you are, they're slow moving and they're for the whole family. And he took that over to Disneyland. He took it over to Disney World. um, And this concept in this like manufacturing concept of animatronics just kind of exploded from there from Walt Disney so it's really impressive what can be done I mean even just like the technology and how it's developed now I mean most places like this wouldn't have the budget but I mean you go to some of these Disney rides nowadays and they have full mobility in their wrists and fingers like humans do and it's really incredible and it's so creepy too i used to work for disney and i've done third shift a couple times of walking the the tracks of the animatronics and redressing them and um it's creepy because you kind of you're alone you're like with two other people dressing these animatronics and you're like oh are they gonna come to life are they gonna kill me when i'm not looking at them it's a it's an interesting concept And, and this film written by geo parsons directed by Kevin Lewis, um, is really creative. Um, I mean, the whole reason why he doesn't speak is because this movie had zero funding in the beginning and Geo Parsons wanted to, he, well, he figured that he would be starring in this movie. Um, so he wanted to make it as easy on himself as possible. <laughs> so, so what's the best way to do that is to not have to memorize any lines. So uh, Nicolas Cage is silent. He's a silent drifter the entire film pounding back that energy drink, playing pinball on his breaks, and then cleaning up Willie's Wonderland, which we find out is a sacrificial ground for people to appease the um, the murders that took... So it, I'm trying to remember. So he's... Willie is a murderer and had his cohort of friends and they were, they all worked at the this Chuck E. Cheese style place. And then... We find out that, right, oh, right, he makes a a satanic sacrifice. Correct, or I believe so. Yes, and all of the souls of him and his cohorts end up in these animatronics. And so to appease these, like, you know, demons, demonic creatures, the town gives up people once in a while. Is it once a year? Or I I don't remember how how many times. I think it's just any time that they need somebody. Yeah. And they it, try to get drifters in. Yeah, because it, <laughs> it always ends up... Or the the introduction, it shows uh, the family, right. which ends up being one of the girls coming right. back to 
try to end it. Right. Emily Tosta, who plays Liv, her character, we find out, is the family at the beginning who the parents get sacrificed and Beth Grant, Sheriff Lund, um, finds her in the closet and kind of raises her as her own. And then she and her friends decide to break into Willy's Wonderland and... um, End it once and for all. Yes. And all of this crazy stuff ensues. But But the town sets up this trap to catch people. Like, they have... The um the speed bumps with the spikes in them so that the tires blow out and then they always take the car into the shop and they say like, oh, we don't have this part or we're still waiting on it. And then, you know, obviously well, it never comes because the people die by morning. Yeah. Or, so. you know, work off the, right, which will, you know, spend a night at our, <laughs> our lovely family friendly restaurant and see what happens. I, yeah, I, I'm a sucker for movies like this because... Um, so this was designed by Jennifer Sheik. First of all, Nick Cage is in this incredible Willy's Wonderland t-shirt, which is damn near impossible to get now. It is sold out on the website. We tried. We tried. Um, because when the movie Adventureland came out, not a horror movie, but when the movie Adventureland came out, I had, I think it's somewhere still in one of my boxes, the Games, Games, Games shirt that Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart wear in the movie. So I love a good, subtle costume like that where you can where it's easily transferable into merchandise so that it's like oh if you're a big fan you would know what this is um but the teenagers in this movie are dressed so insane but they're they're so trendy and they're so hip (laughs) and and like you know emily's character Liv has this incredible leather jacket um, she's a total badass the whole movie. And then the other teenagers throughout the movie are Kayleen Cohen's character, Kathy. She ha- She's, first of all, in these like insane pink fishnets and this incredible denim miniskirt and this like cropped fur jacket. And she's kind of like, well, well, you think she's the stereotypical like, quote unquote, loose girl. So you think she's going to die first. But um she doesn't die first, and she kicks a lot of ass, too. Um, and then the guys are, you know, typical Gen Z teenagers. They've got their beanies. They've got their their flannel and T-shirts and stuff like that. But um, some really insane choices for not a lot of budget money, and uh, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I'm going to second that one. <laughs> Again, I think a lot of people expected more – I don't know what, but we went into it, and we <laughs> wanted Nicolas Cage to – beat up a bunch of animatronics and that's exactly what we got in regards to costuming like you mentioned nick is just wearing the uniform he's silent he clocks out for his breaks and they could still be in the throes of death yeah but it's his 30 minutes he's gonna go relax before he comes back to finish the job (laughs) and i you can't fault him on that no um so it's unclear whether jennifer did the animatronic for characters or not sometimes that's like a weird gray area is that the art department is that costuming um because it wouldn't be special effects special effects is what was rigged in those animatronics so all of the oil that is spilling out of them that's all special effects but um i i would assume that maybe her and art department worked simultaneously to come up with these crazy characters so we have Willie, who is a weasel. Um, we have, let's see if I remember all their names. We have this uh, Serena Siren, who is the pixie. Um, she looks kind of like uh, Tinkerbell. Kind but of, evil. But evil character. Um, and she has a plastic head. She's not a fur character. She's she's a plastic mold head. Um, uh, let's see. We have a knight who, is, okay, so we have Tito. The turtle, who is this, like, Hispanic turtle. He's got a sombrero. He's got... It's a little stereotypical. In a playful... In a playful way. I, I don't I, know. Were you offended? <laughs> n- not in particular. Okay. Everything about that movie was kind of the... Again, like, all the kids, they look cool, but they're all very... This is the jock. This is right. the nerd. And yeah. they all played their roles, as you'd expect said characters to act yeah but in a very tongue-in-cheek way so not really poking fun at anybody and not yeah yeah everything was a vessel in the end for Nicolas Cage to (laughs) kind of do his silent ass kicking um you had nighty night which was the the night so this like 
ginger, um, redheaded knight man person. Um, you had Cammy Chameleon. She was this crazy chameleon with this baby doll dress and these big bulky eyeballs. Um, Artie, which was the alligator, and he had a smock and a beret and a paintbrush. Um, oh, right. Sirene Sarah was the fairy. Then we had Gus the gorilla, who is the big gorilla. And then I feel like I'm missing. And then I said Willie. I feel like I'm missing one. Or it was that, I think it was this, I think it was those six. Because um, I printed, so these characters, I like, I printed all of them out and put them around the party for, for George and his friends. So I think I got, it yeah. Might be a seven. Oh, the ostrich. There we go, the ostrich. yeah. Yeah, um, I can't find the ostrich's name, but she was, she didn't really have a an, an overlay that we call it in the theme park world. So you have fur characters who are just like in fur and then... If they're wearing clothing, it's an overlay. Okay. <laughs> Which is good for me to know. Yeah. Because now I can end this and say, I learned something new today. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an, uh, I, yeah, I really, I, I can't say enough. I really enjoyed this film. I think it really solidified him, Nick Cage. I mean, we already knew that he was kind of this like dramatized version of himself, but I think him not saying a word in this entire film kind of solidified this iconography that he now has. Yeah, because even though he isn't saying much, yeah. he's saying everything. And again, yes. it's he's such a presence that even if he isn't actually saying anything, he's still, you know, you see him and you zone in on him. Yeah. He, he commands that kind of presence. Um, and then the last one we want to talk about, which just came out this year again um, and just came to Shudder a couple of weeks ago, um, is Prisoners of Ghostland starring him starring Bill Mosley and Sophia Butalea. And it is written by Aaron Hendy and directed by Sion Sono. This movie was another insane one, but not just for Nicolas Cage. The entire movie had this very dreamlike quality to it. I really enjoyed it, but I definitely had a lot of questions walking away from this. Now, this one we've only seen once. Um, oh, but before we move on, I do want to say that... Um, broke horror fan his name's alex he runs the broke horror fan account he was awesome enough to get us a vhs copy of willie's wonderland um and he does vhs copies of a lot of different horror movies so if you're interested in that definitely check him out um he awesomely gave us that willie's wonderland copy and i love watching it on vhs because it's really cool seeing it in that grainy quality that analog quality we were talking about um yeah so prisoners of ghostland um i had a lot of questions walking away from this movie I think because it was very existential, it was very ethereal. I got some of the grounding points to this movie, but I still had a lot of questions. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> felt a lot from it, both in terms of what happens to him physically, mm -hmm. but also just in, <laughs> in what he says, how he's radioactive. What? Yeah. What does it mean or what does it make you feel? Right. And I don't have an answer for that, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, this movie was designed by Chico um, Matsumoto. There, I mean, they used this beautiful blend of classic Japanese-style kung fu movie with traditional kimonos and hairstyles and accessories and the makeup. And then they blended it with this Western style. So you saw half of the town was in, you know, just slacks and vests and stetsons and bandanas around their necks and then the other half was this very traditional japanese village and then sprinkled throughout that you had modern characters um wearing just 21st century clothing and then when we moved to the ghost land it was this crazy amalgam of post-apocalyptic with you know steampunk and just all of these different influences that came together um I, I love the costume design in this because there is so much to unpack and there really is so much to unpack with this movie. So like I think Emma and I have to get on and do a separate episode on this one. But there I mean, there's there's a lot. Every character is its own entity and their own personality and they each play a role within the ghost land and within the village that signifies them in this hierarchy i guess you would call it because you have the governor played by bill mosley who's in all white and even makes reference to you know when they kick him the soccer ball like 
watch my white boots. Like he is untouchable. And that's why people in power and rich people often are shown in white because it's, they're the only ones that could afford to, you know, oh, I'm going to wear white because I am untouchable. What could possibly happen to me? Yeah. And with that in mind, even if you look back at what we just spoke about, Willie's Wonderland, the owner of Willie's Wonderland. That's right. Similar outfit, not nearly as pristine looking, but it's that trope of like the all in white, the the villain who has all the power and they always stand out because of what they're wearing and right. they don't want anything to touch them or, or kind of drag them down into the mud. Yeah. Um, then you have the different, um, I mean, he calls them his granddaughters, but really he's, he's selling these women into sex slavery. In Herbie the village. scum. Yeah. And um, they're in these traditional Japanese kimono garments, which I actually don't know too much information about the specifics on how to wear them and how to um, wrap them and, and whatnot. Um, so it's definitely a history that I want to dive in more of, but um, beautiful textures, beautiful silks, embroidery, just the whole, the whole nine yards with those those costumes and um when we see Sophia Pagara's character escape with her two friends yeah her name is Bernice and when we see her escape with her two friends from this village they are consumed by the ghost land because the the legend is that you can't move between the ghost land and this village without being confronted by these ghosts that and then you become a prisoner of time you become a prisoner of space but it's really what i took away from it was this allegory of what happens after nuclear fallout because they're talking about the atomic bomb they're talking about how this building hasn't been around since that fallout and there was a nuclear accident that happened and that's why there are those ghosts there because the bus ran into there's like an accident the prisoners yeah, 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 yeah. or the, yeah. the actual prisoners so they so you find out that nicholas cage's character he's the film opens with him robbing a bank and that bank is that scene is so stark star- yeah because the whole bank is white everybody inside that bank is color blocked and they are all monochrome they are all in one color so you have women one woman is in all pink one woman is in all yellow all green there's a little boy in this bright red sweater with the mat with the clown mask on the back of his head and Nick Cage and his buddy Psycho come in and they're robbing the bank and they're in all black and they're they look so you know I, I mean and they're two large white men coming into this Japanese bank so they obviously stand out a lot yeah but, their, their appearance and yeah. just their presence commands and you focus in on them because right they're robbing the place so it, it makes yeah. sense yeah and then we jump forward and we find Nicolas Cage still in jail from this incident and he is tasked to bring Bernice back to this village and if he doesn't do it in three days, um, he wears this like great leather jumpsuit with all of these <laughs> like red lights on it for different um, explosives in different areas of the body. So like he's got two on his testicles, he's got one on both of his elbows and some around his neck that like if he doesn't bring her back within the time allotted, these are going to go off. Um, and this is a newer movie, so I don't want to give too many spoilers away in that regard as far as story points go but um know that it is an insane insane ride oh yeah (laughs) it's it's something to behold and yeah yeah, the the main town is steeped in culture both in terms of traditional japanese mixed in with the the western kind of like the anime samurai shampoo whereas then you leave the confines of that space and you go out into the wilderness and it kind of it feels more it's a wasteland it's inhabited by ghosts or so it's very inspired by or at least what i'd imagine of japanese yokai and ghost stories and the weird demons that they've used to scare children in their end of the world whereas we have our versions of it and can you elaborate on some of those because i don't know anime you know anime what is a yokai and what or is it like a paranormal entity is it like yeah so so it's kind of like what we would equate in the in western society is like a victorian quote-unquote ghost right yeah okay. it's their equivalent of folklore so okay it's their stories of of warnings of things that you shouldn't do in and learn about from it or avoid it so you don't get caught by Mm. some sort of creature or demon and avoid the punishment of it 
Gotcha. So something like the grudge, would that be considered a yokai or it has to be a moral fable? No, that that would be, okay. in terms of my knowledge of it, I would consider that along those lines. Again, it's, it's their folklore, so mm-hmm. it's stories. It can be a ghost. It could be some sort of demonic being. It, it encompasses a lot more than I think we could even touch upon or even just my limited scope. Hmm. Okay. Now, I thought that this was based on a graphic novel. It's not. But in terms of like the beats of a lot of Japanese cinema and anime cinema and like that kind of cinema, does it hit those same beats or is it a blend of Western and Eastern beats that it's hitting in the film? I would consider, yeah, it's it's a mix again and it, it kind of wears that on its sleeve from the, the get-go. Mm-hmm. Again, you have cowboys and samurais and, and women clad in kimonos swords and guns and crazy leather outfits so it's taking a mix of everything and blending it to make its own unique concoction of of visuals yeah and they use um they use dolls a lot too in this movie which is really interesting that the prisoners who become so absorbed in this wasteland this like no man's land start to become dolls essentially where they're pieces of mannequin and plastic um is construct reconstructed around their bodies to encase them and to to prison to to shelter them even more um and it's a really interesting choice because when they start talking about the atomic fallout i always think i i thought about with those moments the you know, the mannequins that were used and the houses that were used, the fake houses, the mannequins that were used for nuclear testing, where they just set up these villages and they looked like suburban neighborhoods out in the deserts of Arizona and Nevada and stuff. And they they essentially just built homes and, and they dressed the mannequins like they would have in the 50s when they were testing all of this stuff, like the Manhattan Project and whatnot. And so these mannequin pieces, it's it was an interesting choice. And I know that it was definitely a purposeful choice to use those mannequin pieces because they're broken shards of the of those exact mannequins and that style of mannequin that was used for that testing. So I highly recommend this one. I, I really think you should check it out. Um, yeah, like I, I like I said, I don't want to get too spoiler heavy, mostly because I definitely need another viewing of it to absorb more of it because it has so many layers to it. But from a costuming perspective, it was very much, if you are familiar with, um, wasteland weekend which is like this post-apocalyptic weekend out in california it was a lot of that type of clothing so very mad max style found objects but not skimpy like mad max is it wasn't so muscular um it was more layered wrapped pieces a lot of you know the the women and the men were covered and then in the middle of it you had this priest and you had this angel figure that were telling stories and and relaying stories and they were the storytellers of these forgotten people of these lost people so it was really it's really fascinating tale for sure um they used in one of the scenes they used you know to show the prison ghosts they used traditional the black and white stripe jumpsuit which is really cool choice because it is a very campy choice to use that um i mean our standard prison jumpsuits now can either be blue or they're orange most of the time so that's very much a a a dramatized or not even dramatized like a romanticized version of like prison jumpsuits now because they we don't use the black and white stripe anymore so it feels of another time and place so that was nice to see that choice in those characters yeah there there's a lot of there's a lot going on in this movie. There's there's a lot happening. So definitely deserves a, a second or a third watch. And I agree with that one. Again, this one, I think in terms of all the ones we've spoken about, I think has the most in terms of fodder or material that I'd love to hear more insight in terms of just you guys. Because yeah. you and Emma have this knowledge base of costuming and design. So I can look at it and just say, hey, that looks cool, or <laughs> hey, that looks interesting. But then, again, I, I like being able to turn to you guys and getting that deeper sense of insight yeah. in terms of how they did it, what they did it with, and why did they do it. Mm-hmm. I, it was definitely no small feat. I mean, there was a lot of pieces, a lot of layers for a lot of actors. So, you know, the costume department on this film, it was no small feat for sure. 
there's a lot of extras in this. And when you're dressing extras, that is a whole new set of things because, you know, you have to make sure that everybody looks cohesive, but there aren't repeats, especially with something like this where it's super easy to repeat. Um, so I really commend um, Chico and, and their team because, you know, it, it, it's a lot of the same color and it, that's really easy for people to get lost in and nobody got lost. I felt like everybody had their presence on screen, which was really amazing and really effective. Um, and the texture was great. There was a lot of burlaps. There was a lot of found objects, a lot of scraps of fabrics, lots of rougher fabrics. And then in the town, you saw a lot of smoother fabrics, a lot of more refined fabric, tailored pieces. Even on the cowboys, they were dirtier, but they were still fitted and tailored. Yeah. So it was really nice. Very nice contrast. So kudos. Kudos. So now closing thoughts. I know you really love some of Nick Cage's personal clothing. Do you want to talk about some of his personal clothing that you've seen him in? Do you have a favorite outfit of his that you've seen him in? Oh, well, (laughs) I think if I'm correct, most recently, I think it was with his latest lover, which I don't know (laughs) if that is still accurate anymore, but he might have been wearing some sort of, it was a jacket and I believe it had some sort of animal print, might have been pink. Oh, yes. I think that one kind of stands out. Was that uh, the bedazzled one? Did it have like bedazzled sleeves? Because I saw one that I thought had bedazzled sleeves on it. I believe so. Okay. So that outfit kind of sticks out on my head. His, just everything about him. His beard, I think. <laughs> I know it's not a costume. It's just his look. But it, there's such a richness to it. There, He definitely dyes it because it is a very different color than his hair color. And there are lines on his chin. So you can see where, where he's colored it in. It works. Uh, I think it he cuts a silhouette that can't be replicated and he wears a lot of he wears a lot of leather yeah and it's never your typical leather jacket because he would look cool otherwise but he just has to make it his own and then he just makes himself untouchable yeah so there's there's cool there's james dean cool but then there's what yeah there's what he's doing yeah that's cool yeah yeah he's definitely more toned down in his films than he is in real life he's he definitely takes some some fashion risks and his in his life and his wives his couple of wives that i've seen him with over the years they also have i mean they're also like my age and he's like 52 so they take some oh no i think his wives are younger than me i think they're in their are they in their mid to early 20s or are they in their latter half of their 20s i lose track i'm <laughs> i don't stay that active in celebrity lives in the cage which is what yeah i was saying his latest things may have changed in a matter of the last few months I always wish him well. Yeah. If you're listening to this, Nick, <laughs> I'm a big fan. For sure. For sure. Um, and we appreciate your fashion choices. So keep making those fashion choices and being you because we appreciate it 100%. Um, and I know that we'll get more into his films more when Emma comes back. And so this will be our November episode. We, Emma and I have figured out the kinks on how to get podcasts to you um, bi-monthly so that we don't just do one episode a month despite our busy schedules. But unfortunately, that's the drawback when you have two working designers who work on opposite coasts with opposite schedules sometimes, um, which is fine. We're making it work. So um, we've got two holiday episodes coming up for you guys. And then we'll start back up again in January in the new year. We're putting some stuff together, laying the groundwork for some stuff. So hopefully we can make a few of those things happen. And um, I can for sure say that next time we will be joined by writer-director Marcus Slaybein, who is one of my dear friends, but he is also the writer-director of the upcoming Night of the Living Dead 2 sequel-ish in the in the Romero verse um, that I'm working with him on, so we'll get into that and in our favorite Christmas horror. Um, and this will come out the week of Hanukkah, so happy Hanukkah to our Jewish listeners. Yeah, um, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you, George, for taking time out of um, <laughs> your day <laughs> to sit down with me, even though you're never far from me. <laughs> I I mean, it's just a pleasure to be a part of it, and always talking about like oh we should do something together in terms of recording so to finally be a part of one it's it's fantastic and the fact that it was the the nick cage one so happy to do it yay maybe i'll be back around we'll we'll (laughs) see how the schedule opens up but if not the fans are in good hands with you and emma and they have a lot to look forward to i'm excited i'm very excited 
yeah, I like doing this too because we don't actually get to work together. We work adjacent to each other. So, um, although if those of you have seen the Spookies episode of The Last Drive-In, George was one of the zombies in the background going horde behind Mr. Joe Bob Briggs. So she did dress me. <laughs> I embodied the role, and I could only do that because of the expert outfit and or- amazing makeup by Amy Kug. Oh yes, I. <laughs> And Ashley Thompson. Yeah, I I took all, all the parts. They they told me what to do, and I went into character, and I didn't leave it for the next few days, which was very difficult for Jolene to deal with. <laughs> um, so don't forget to follow us on Instagram at To Die For Podcast. That's D Y E, and on Twitter at Die Podcast. And the next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces can also be to die.